welcome to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. It is a pleasure to be with you all on a Friday. Uh, our, our show is usually on Wednesday uh, evenings. This is, this is pretty unusual because we just did a show um, on Ethiopia, on Rastafarianism, and, uh, and about Haley Selassie um, less than 48 hours ago. Uh, so we are back very, very quickly. It's been a whirlwind of activity for the ISM team over the last couple of days and the week prior to that, as we have been setting up today's very special episode. Um, thank you all for joining us. This is our, uh, our special conversation episode with Dan Barker. Uh, he's going to be joining us uh, in, uh, I think, 30 minutes or less or so. We will, uh, we will cover some, some news at the beginning of the show, as we usually do, and then we will bring him uh, onto the program for a wider discussion, both about the Freedom From Religion Foundation, but also about atheism and secularism at large. We are very much looking forward to that, and we want to thank um, him and his team for helping to facilitate this very special evening. Um, with me tonight, as always, is Scott. Um, you can follow him at El Deuterino on Twitter and on Periscope. You can follow myself at Dopinephron on Twitter and Periscope. I cannot express to you all how very, very excited we are about uh, the content that we have provided for this evening. We think that it's going to be a lot of fun. We think there's going to be a lot of good information, and we hope that everybody leaves tonight uh, feeling a little invigorated, a little excited, and, uh, and, and, and having had a wonderful time with us. Uh, the uh, uh, Periscope is live. I want to thank Young Athlon 399 for hosting that, as he does every week, and I am... Uh, I have this terrible habit now where I forget for the first minute of the broadcast to launch the chat window on Blog Talk. It is launching now, so that will be up momentarily for those who are listening on blogtalkradio.com slash informed podcast. You can engage with us there on that medium, and of course, you can also post your comments on um, Periscope. We don't plan on having open phone lines tonight. Um, we want to be able to focus on this conversation, so we'll have our guests call in, but we probably won't be picking up any phone calls um, from the general viewership. Um, with that said, I should probably make sure that Scott is well-rested, that he is good to go. I myself am feeling a bit of trepidation, but I think we are, I think we are prepared. I am more invigorated than anything else. Scott, how are you feeling this fine evening? You know, a little dehydrated, a little worn out, but uh, nothing that a couple of bottles of water and good conversation can't cure. There you go. There you go. Well said. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got my beverages ready as well. Um, we've been we've been working very very hard, but it has been a lot of fun, um, and we are excited about tonight. Um, we want to start by talking about what happened in Washington D.C. yesterday. Uh, anybody who's been watching the news has seen all of the uh, all of the stuff about Trump Care. Uh, Congress basically passed a, a resolution to repeal Obamacare. That's been the major news that everybody is covering because that's a that's a pretty big deal. But that's not what we want to talk about. Um, on the same day, um, President Trump signed an executive order that we all need to take the time to recognize and notice and talk about. Um, and so what we want to do is we want to begin with that conversation and then talk about um, how this might affect the nation and what the Freedom From Religion Foundation is doing in response. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow from an article from the New York Times. This is by Lori Goodstein and Michael D. Shear from May 4th, 2017. 
Donald Trump signed his long-awaited executive order on religious liberty Thursday with a full-throated reassurance that he would protect the freedom of American believers. But the reactions of religious leaders across the country suggest that it instead promised freedoms many of them did not want and failed to deliver concrete legal protections that conservatives had been led to expect. The centerpiece of the order is a pledge to allow clergy members and House and houses of worship to endorse political candidates from the pulpit, fulfilling a campaign promise that Mr. Trump repeatedly used to rally his as a whole, nor religious leaders in particular, even evangelicals, who voted for Mr. Trump in droves, think that partisan politicking by churches is a good idea. I don't actually know anybody who has endorsed or who wants to endorse a politician from the pulpit, said Lee Anderson, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, an umbrella group representing about 40 denominations and 45,000 churches. My idea is that church is about teaching the Bible. It's about discipleship and evangelicism. It's not about politics. The order was also a stinging disappointment for conservative religious leaders who had expected that it would exempt their organizations from Obama-era regulations aimed at protecting gay people from discrimination. The executive order does not mention anything about relief for religious groups and charities that object to serving or hiring gay, bisexual, or transgender people, and that we're looking into Mr. Trump for legal cover. In failing to deliver for people of faith, President Trump risks alienating the single constituency most responsible for his election, said Brian S. Brown, president of the National Organization for Marriage, a group that has fought to stop same-sex marriage. Quite strangely, he is rewarding LGBT extremists who strongly oppose his election. Strangely, he went on to say that, that he thought that uh, Mr. Trump was rewarding LGBT extremists who strongly opposed his election. I'm not even sure what exactly that means. Um, Ryan T. Anderson, a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation who specializes in religious liberty, said, in reality, what Mr. Trump issued today is rather weak. The Freedom From Religion Foundation, which promotes separation between church and state, did file a lawsuit in federal court in Wisconsin on Thursday, saying the president was favoring religious groups over secular nonprofits. The two-page executive order does address religious objections to the Obama administration's mandate in the Affordable Care Act requiring employers to cover contraceptives in their insurance plans. It directs the secretaries of the Treasury and the Departments of Labor and Health and Human Services to consider issuing amended regulations. Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, said Thursday that the department would be taking action in short order to follow the president's instruction, but offered no details. The executive order pleased the Roman Catholic nuns of the Little Sisters of the Poor who took their fight against the contraception mandate to the Supreme Court. The Obama administration had offered the sisters a waiver to remove themselves from direct involvement in covering contraception, but the sisters said it still violated their religious beliefs. The nuns and some conservative religious groups contend that some contraceptives induce abortions, and the mandate has been challenged in multiple court cases. Lori Windham uh, a senior counsel at Beckett, a law firm that represented the Little Sisters, said Thursday, we're very happy with the order today. Uh, the only way we'd be disappointed is if the agencies did not carry it out. Mr. Trump signed the order in a sunny ceremony in the Rose Garden on the National Day of Prayer, surrounded by smiling religious leaders from a broad variety of faiths who reportedly rose to their feet and applauded. For too long, 
The federal government has used the power of the state as a weapon against people of faith, bullying and even pushing Americans for following their religious, uh, punishing Americans for following their religious beliefs, he told them. You are now in a position where you can say what you want to say. To the nuns in the audience, Mr. Trump said, your long ordeal will soon be over. Okay? It's been a long, hard ordeal. Many of those in the audience were members of Mr. Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board, a group of pastors and ministry leaders who stood by him during his presidential campaign last year. They were treated to a celebratory dinner with Mr. Trump and members of his family in the White House on Wednesday night, and many of them came away saying they were thrilled. Mr. Trump was expected to sign an executive order on religious liberty early in his first 100 days. A draft order that leaked in February was so sweeping that it set off alarm bells among liberal and gay rights groups while deleting or delighting converse conservatives involved in conflict over religious liberty. We uh, we lost you just for a moment there, Scott. I'm going to pick up where I heard you cut out. Uh, the draft order that leaked in February was so sweeping that it set off alarm bells among liberal and gay rights groups while delighting conservatives involved in conflicts of religious liberty. But according to two senior administration officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to avoid divulging their conversations with the president, that draft did not rise to the attention of Mr. Trump or his senior aides until some news outlets began reporting that the president might sign it. The White House then promptly issued a statement insisting that Mr. Trump was proud of his public statements in support of gay people. This week, he told aides that his opinion on the matter had not changed despite the pressure from some conservatives. So I find this really interesting here because um, we remember uh, in a lot of news then. Uh, there were actually a lot of secular groups that stood up against what was being proposed. Um, what ended up being signed was was a bit hollowed out by comparison. But um, when they spoke with administration officials, they said that that draft that we all knew was, was what he planned to sign at the time, um, Trump knew nothing about it. He didn't know what the people around him were planning to put in front of him for a signature. This, this lends itself to a trend by which this president seems to continually be out of touch with what his own staff is doing, doesn't seem to be in charge of, um, of what the administration is putting forward as priority. He's not involved in the day-to-day uh, administration of, of new executive orders. This is just it seems like other people handle all of that. He's not even aware of the priority, and then they finally bring it to him, convince him of why he should sign it, and then he signs it. That, that is one of the most telling portions in this entire article, um, and uh, we should find that troubling, I think. The order's biggest effects on religious life could come through its directives on partisan politicking by houses of worship. Since 1954, the Johnson Amendment, promoted by Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, has threatened religious organizations and charities with loss of their tax-exempt status if they endorse or oppose political candidates. In reality, this was rarely enforced, and the IRS rarely investigated. Though Mr. Trump's order cannot change the law, it directs the Treasury Department not to take any adverse action against the violator to the extent permitted by law. Uh, Lori, uh, Lloyd Mayer, a Notre Dame the order it doesn't change anything because the IRS has been very wary of enforcing the Johnson Amendment. But he added, 
there is the risk that it will open the door for people to create arguably fake churches, the Church of Obama, the Church of Trump, and use that as a mechanism to obtain anonymous tax-deductible contributions, which can then be spent on political activity. Jennifer Copeland, executive director of the North Carolina Council of Churches and a United Methodist minister in Raleigh, said that she could foresee situations in which a donor offered to build a family life center for a church in exchange for supporting his favorite candidate. The church will become its own super PAC, she said. A broad swath of religious leaders representing 99 religious organizations sent a letter to members of Congress last month urging them to preserve the Johnson Amendment. The signers include Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Unitarians, Quakers, Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, Hindus. Even evangelical leaders opposed lifting the restriction. A survey by the National Association of Evangelicals released in February found that 90% of their board members believe pastors should not endorse candidates from the pulpit. The American public is also opposed. A poll by the Pew Research in 2000, Center in 2016 found that though many Americans favor allowing churches and houses of worship to take positions on political and social issues, two-thirds are opposed to having the churches endorse candidates. That percentage has held steady for eight years. So it turns out that even though we have a law saying that churches are churches and that as 501c3s, that is different than being able to um, engage in, in using the uh, pulpit to endorse candidates, uh, to try to put the, the weight of your congregation be, be, behind a particular candidate. Uh, the government hasn't really even been bothering to enforce this before the limited investigations, none of which actually ended in any kind of punitive measure. Um, the, the, what's supposed to happen here is if, say, the Church of Scientology comes out tomorrow and says, um, we are going to throw all of our money behind Ted Cruz for president in 2020. We're going to endorse him. We're going to give whatever we want to, to um, his campaign. We're also going to use our money, our donations to us as a 501c3, as a recognized uh, church in the eyes of the IRS. We're going to use all of that money to put ads up for Mr. Cruz. We're going to promote him in every possible way. Um, the, the IRS at that point is supposed to talk with the rest of the government and say, they're breaking the law here. We need to investigate. And upon proving that that was indeed their intent, they're supposed to lose their 501c3 uh, status. That's the way that it's supposed to work. This amendment says, we're not changing that law, but if you do it, we don't care. There's technically a rule on the books. We can't make it legal in an easy way and – We'd rather just do this by executive order than try and get Congress to do it, which would actually change the law. So in and if you break the law in this particular case, since you're religious, it's cool with us. We won't bother uh, prosecuting or investigating. It's totally fine. Um, even without that order… For all intents and purposes, that's how the IRS has been handling this. They just kind of don't. 
if they investigate, they never actually uh, punish the organization that's breaking this law. They just they just let it go. We're running into a lot of sound problems here with uh, blog talk. Sorry, everyone. It's cutting both of our mics out. So hopefully it'll rectify itself. Corey, you still with me? We were, uh, I'm sorry about that, just trying to work on this sound stuff, and Corey was on the phone trying to uh, screen some calls. I wanted to give a little background on um, the FFRF and their involvement with the National Day of Prayer. The National Day of Prayer is an annual day of observance held on the first Thursday of May, designated by the United States Congress when people are asked to turn to God in prayer and meditation. Each year since its inception, the president has signed a proclamation encouraging all Americans to pray on this day. The modern law formalizing its annual observance was enacted in 1952, although earlier days of fasting and prayer had been established by the Second Con uh, Continental Congress from 1775 until 1783. And that was enacted by uh, President John Adams. <clears throat> the National Day of Prayers faced legal challenges, and this is where I was mentioning the FFRF. Uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation sued to challenge the designation of National Day of Prayer on October 3rd, 2008. The Wisconsin-based organization filed suit in the federal court in Madison, naming as defendants President George W. Bush, White House Press Secretary Dana Perino, Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle, and evangelist uh, Dobson's wife, Shirley Dobson, in her capacity as chair of the National Day of Prayer Task Force. The Alliance Defense Fund provided defense for Shirley Dobson, while government lawyers asked U.S. District Judge Barbara Crabb to dismiss the case, arguing principally that the group has no legal status to sue. On March 1st, 2010, U.S. District Judge Barbara Crabb stated that FFRF's lawsuit could proceed because the plaintiffs had shown that they suffered concrete injury that can potentially be remedied by judicial action. Judge Crabb stated about those supporting the federal law designated National Day of Prayer, adopting the defendant's view of standing would allow the government to have understrained authority to demand members of any religious group without legal consequence demean members of any religious group that legal consequence, sorry. The federal government could declare the National Day of Anti-Seminism or even declare Christianity the official religion of the United States, but no one would have standing to sue because no one would have to pass by those declarations. On April 15, 2010, Judge Crabb ruled that the statute established in National Day of Prayer was unconstitutional as it is an inherently religious exercise that serves no secular function. However, Crabb stayed her ruling pending the completion of appeals. The U.S. Department of Justice filed a notice to appeal the ruling on April 22, 2010, and on April 14, 2011, a three-judge panel of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously overturned Crabb's decision. The panel turn ruled that FFRF did not have standing to sue because the National Day of Prayer had not caused them harm and stated that a feeling of alienation cannot suffice as injury. 
The court further stated that the president is free to make appeals to the public based on many kinds of grounds, including political and religious, and that such requests do not obligate citizens to comply and do not encroach on citizens' rights. The Federal Appeals Court also cited Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which referenced God seven times and prayer three times. In a counter to the National Day of Prayer is the National Day of Reason, the secular celebration for humanists, atheists, and other secularists and free thinkers. In response to the National Day of Prayer, a legal holiday in the United States, the day is celebrated on the first Thursday of May of every year to coincide with National Day of Prayer, which many atheists and secular groups view to be unconstitutional. The purpose of the National Day of Reason is to celebrate reason, a concept all Americans can support, and to raise public awareness about the persistent threat to religious liberty posed by government intrusion into the private sphere of worship. The National Day of Reason is also meant to help build community among the non-religious in the United States. Scott, can you hear me right now? I can. Okay. All right. Um, I am not sure what happened there. I apologize to everybody. Uh, We're having some issues with Blog Talk Radio. What I've done is I've just gone ahead and called in um, on my phone. So my quality might be a little bit lower, but um, this is the nature of live radio. You just have to sort of improvise on the fly. Um, uh, if you can carry on for just a moment, I'm going to check this call and see if our guest is with us. The National Day of Reason was created by the American Humanist Association and the Washington Area Secular Humanists in 2003. In addition to serving as a holiday for Constitutionalists and secularists, the National Day of Reason was created in response to the perceived unconstitutionality of the National Day of Prayer. According to the organizers of the National Day of Reason, the National Day of Prayer violates the First Amendment of the United States Constitution because it asks federal, state, and local governments entities to set aside tax dollars supported time and space to engage in religious ceremonies. In 2005, the New York City-based Center for Atheism began to strongly advocate for observers of the National Day of Reason to celebrate in a positive manner. They decided to donate blood as a group in order to make a public statement about the life-affirming ideas of non-believers. The National Day of Reason has taken some time to gain popularity, however. Over time, more local and state governments have been giving the Day of Reason official recognition. In 2011 and 2012, Representative Pete Stark supported a proclamation in Uh, support of the National Day of Reason in the United States House of Representatives. For the first time, a resolution to honor the National Day of Reason was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives. The resolution, U.S. House Resolution 228, posed by Representative Mike Conda on April 29, 2015. Several organizations associated with the National Day of Reason have organized food drives and blood donations, while other groups have called for an end to prayer invocations at city meetings. Other organizations, such as the Oklahoma Atheists and the Minnesota Atheists, have organized local secular celebrations as alternatives to National Day of Prayer. Additionally, many individuals affiliated with these atheistic groups choose to protest the National Day of Prayer. Some politicians have... Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. Um, That was was a a bit of a a momentary meltdown on my end, but have our uh, our guests uh, with us. Um, they are standing by. We've got um, uh, Dan Barker and his son, Danny Barker. Um, 
Scott, forgive me. Um, have we already? Have you already discussed what the FFRF did yesterday? I have not. Okay, let's just go ahead and talk about that with the man himself. Um, Dan Barker is the co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation and the co-host of Free Thought Radio, a national weekly talk show. He is a contributing editor of Free Thought Today and is involved with the foundation's state and church lawsuits. Mr. Barker is a prolific author, writing such books as Maybe Yes, Maybe No, A Guide for Young Skeptics, Losing Faith in Faith, From Preacher to Atheist, Godless, How an Evangelical Preacher Became One of America's Leading Atheists, The Good Atheist, Living a Purpose-Filled Life with God, Life-Driven Purpose, How an Atheist Finds Meaning, and God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. These books are available for sale at many outlets, and we encourage you to find them on Amazon, Google Books, iTunes, or at your local bookstore. Dan Barker was a Baptist preacher for many years before growing out of religion and embracing his lack of belief in God as an atheist. His first public appearance as an atheist was with Oprah Winfrey in 1984, and since then he has regularly traveled the country and the world, giving lectures and performing concerts, and has participated in over 120 public debates with theists, many at college and university campuses. With charm and wit, he has laid waste to bad arguments and logical fallacies, all the while encouraging free thought and humanist values. He inspired us when he said, I have something to say about the religious who feels atheists never say anything positive. You are an intelligent human being. Your life is valuable for its own sake. You are not, you are not second class to the universe, deriving meaning and purpose from some other mind. You are not inherently evil. You are inherently human, possessing the positive rational potential to make this world a world of morality, peace, and joy. Trust yourself. He reminded the strangely suspicious public that the atheists I know, virtually all of whom are happy and mentally healthy, might more properly be called anti-nihilists. We are mainly optimists who love our lives and find them to be full of meaning and purpose. He dropped the microphone on the theistic bastardization of epistemology when he said, faith is a cop-out. If the only way you can accept an assertion is by faith, then you are conceding that it can't be taken on its own merits. It is intellectual bankruptcy. And he boiled down the silly and solipsistic notion of sin with a terse and potent analogy. The very concept of sin comes from the Bible. Christianity offers to solve a problem of its own making. Would you be thankful to a person who cuts you with a knife in order to sell you a bandage? Mr. Barker has graciously agreed to join us this afternoon for a discussion on secularism and atheism, and we could not be more pleased to have the audience with us for what we believe will be a rewarding and memorable exchange. Making this conversation doubly rewarding is the inclusion of Dan's son, Danny, who coordinated with our team over the past week and has made this episode possible. Danny and his wife, Karina, have three daughters, Mika, Kilani, and Ivy. Uh, Danny is also an atheist and has been engaged in the conversation on Periscope and other social media platforms. He also helped with the mountain of research that went into his father's book, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. We want to offer him our sincere gratitude for his work in helping this interaction take shape. That's right. It's been a busy week, but it's also been one of the most exciting at ISM. We want to thank the podcast team for their hard work and focus. We asked a lot of you guys, and you delivered, from the graphics to the logistics to the program. Before I formally introduce our guest, allow me to briefly add to Corey's introduction. When I became an atheist at 21, I was precisely that, a non-believer. I was newly married with a baby and starting a career in the military. I came to my disbelief through studying the Bible, and honestly, I didn't get out of Genesis before I had lost my faith. I was too uneducated, too naive to see that there was more to this topic. I continued that way for the next 14 years. Then, when I was 35, 
I came across a BBC documentary called Atheism, A Rough History of Disbelief. I was suddenly, into my excitement, exposed to brilliant minds like Daniel Dennett and, of course, Richard Dawkins. I quickly realized that disbelief was not enough, that religion was enacting real harm in the world, and that if I wanted to make a difference, then I needed to educate myself the best I could in these arguments and be outspoken. So over the next five years, I continued my search for more educated individuals engaged in this conversation. I found several along the way and learned a great deal. It wasn't until about a year ago that I was exposed to Dan Barker of the FFRF and the above-mentioned debate with Matt Slick. I remember being impressed with his knowledge, but more than that, I found myself inspired by the way he presented that knowledge. Playful, relaxed, polite, but ready to call out the theists when they misrepresented something, always sharply making his point while remaining calm and respectful. Since then, when I think to myself, how is it that I should engage in this conversation, I think to that debate and to many others of Mr. Barker's and do my best to behave as he does. With that, we are pleased to be joined by Dan and his son tonight. Mr. Barker, Danny, welcome to Informed Secular Minds. Hello, good to be here. We're, um, we're in my office here at FFRF, and Danny and I are using the speakerphone. So Informed Secular Minds, what's your guys' names? I didn't jot down your names. Uh, I am Corey. Uh, I go by Dopinephrine on Twitter and on Periscope, and uh, 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 the other host is Scott. Uh, he's at El Dutorino Corey. on both of those platforms as well. Corey and Scott. Great. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, good to talk to you guys. Fantastic to talk to you, sir. Thank you for joining us. So we began the... So, uh, uh, yeah. The, the broadcast began with us sort of covering the executive order um, that, that was signed yesterday. Um, and we want to also discuss um, your response to that. Um, uh, we saw that the Freedom From Religion Foundation has filed a lawsuit in Wisconsin. Uh, it's a bold action taken in response to this executive order. And we wanted to sort of hear from you um, what what the purpose of the lawsuit is, precisely what the FFRF's uh, issue with the executive order is, and what you uh, would hope is an outcome from this lawsuit. So we watched that whole uh, Rose Garden ceremony yesterday uh, where they had the National Day of Prayer, you know, the first Thursday of every uh, every May. And uh, as I think you said earlier, we did sue over that and got a, a positive victory from uh, the federal court. We're suing in Wisconsin, but it's federal court, so it's a federal lawsuit. Uh, and then, as you also pointed out, the appeals court in Chicago overturned it, not on the merits. The court didn't say we were wrong. The court just said we couldn't have standing to sue. So um, the National Day of Prayer continues, and Bush was there, and there were a bunch of – there was a um, priest and a – uh, a rabbi and a, another minister, they all prayed to God, and they quoted 2 Corinthians uh, 7.14. I'm sure you know that verse um, twice. And um, then right after that National Day prayer travesty, I mean ceremony, uh, <laughs> they, um, and it was pretty silly. I mean, they're talking to this non-existent thing, and they're acting really, really self-important, you know. And they're just a small wedge of Christianity because most Christians are smarter than that. Most Christians in the country don't want the Johnson Amendment overturned. But right after the ceremony, then Bush went to this table and he signed uh, not he signed the proclamation, which he has to do because Congress told him. But then he signed this executive order, which uh, 
is telling the IRS basically to ignore the law. When when Bush was, I mean, when Trump was campaigning, you know, in 2016, he was all the time saying, "When I'm elected, I'm going to repeal the Johnson Amendment." And of course, he can't repeal the Johnson Amendment because only Congress can do that. And so now, apparently, Trump realizes that, and he can't repeal the the Johnson Amendment. So he's doing an end run. He's signing an executive order telling the IRS, well, just go easy on churches. Let them get away with it. The Johnson Amendment prohibits nonprofits like churches and like our group from overtly politicking. They can't get up in the pulpit and tell people who to vote for. You can talk about issues, but they can't use the church as a political machine. Like when you give money to a church or when you give money to our group, we're a nonprofit, and I hope you give very generous money to our group, but um, you can write that off on your taxes, right? When, you, when tax time comes around, it's a donation that's tax deductible. And the bargain we strike for doing that is that we agree not to be political. If you give money to a political candidate or a PAC or something or, or a, a party, uh, you can't deduct that because that's political, right? So there's a difference between political donations and just plain nonprofit. So Trump's executive order is telling the IRS that if a church violates this agreement and goes ahead and starts doing political action, well, let them get away with it, basically. Uh, you know, they're good people. Churches are good people. So uh, we, we think we sued right, right away. In fact, our attorneys were on it, Andrew Seidel and Sam Grover and, and uh, Rich Bolton. And we didn't, we, we couldn't sue until we knew the exact wording of the executive order. But when we did, then we filed immediately, like that very day, like yesterday afternoon, uh, saying that first of all, Trump is over, overstepping his authority. He doesn't have the right to do that. Uh, and secondly, that it's uh, endorsing religion over non-religion. It's giving favoritism to churches, which he, in, in fact, our lawsuit has more than a dozen quotes from Trump saying exactly that. I want to advance Christianity. I want to stop the government from censoring pastors and priests. Um, so uh, apparently in the legal community today, we're reading that uh, a lot of scholars and experts and commentators are agreeing with us. Yeah, there's some serious issues here with, um, with the government doing that. It would be like Trump telling uh, the police officer, if you see somebody going 90 miles an hour on the interstate, well, if it's a church van, just let them go. You know, I mean, if it's a church bus, you know, just don't don't give them a ticket, right? Well, what authority does he have to do that to tell them to not to not enforce the law? And by the way, um, we actually sued a few years ago about that. We actually sued the IRS because they were not enforcing the law over church politicking, and we settled the lawsuit when the IRS assured us that they had hired somebody to now take to proceed with, uh, you know. Uh, processing those complaints about churches that are breaking the law in that way. So we could go back into court on that one as well. It was sued without prejudice, so we could go back in and bring up that lawsuit again. So that's um, probably more than you wanted to know, but that's what happened yesterday. Yeah, that's – that's. Um, I don't know that there's such a thing as more than we need to know about this particular subject. This is, um, uh, in, in, in our view, a pretty major – um, secular issue and it's happening on the national level um, and we're we're grateful that there are organizations like the Freedom from Religion Foundation uh, that are willing to uh, take up this fight and push back against uh, against this kind of this kind of action. Essentially, what's being said, if I'm understanding correctly, is that um, there's a law that if you're a 501c3, you're not allowed to uh, accept tax-free uh, uh, donations and then 
um, endorse political candidates, politicking. Um, and what Trump is saying is, well, that's true. Legally, you can't. But if you do and you say it's because of God, then we won't do anything about you. But he doesn't include anything in this executive order about secular charities or at least non-religious charities. He just says that religious ones specifically don't have to follow the law, whereas everybody who's not doing it for a religious purpose does have to follow the law. Yeah, that's right, and that's why we can sue. That's what gives us standing because there's preference. If our group was to go on the radio, we have a national radio show called Free Thought Radio, or, and we, have, we now have a new TV studio. If we were to get up and tell people who to vote for, vote for Daniel T. Barker for uh, whatever he's running for, uh, you can bet they would shut us down. Right. And, and we would lose a lot of members, too, because, you know, people don't join our group to be told who to vote for, you know, what, or, or who to vote against. And in fact, there's a lot of church members who like the Johnson Amendment. They don't want it overturned. They, they're not going to church to be told what their political view should be. So so you're absolutely right. It's uh, it it discriminates against us by allowing churches to get away with something that we're not allowed to get away with. So on that basis, we can claim that that uh, there's uh, not equal treatment, and the government's supposed to treat everybody equally and not give favoritism or not to hinder, favor or hinder any group based on their religious or non-religious views. So that's uh, that's why we can actually take the case in the first place. Um, so for you, what is the best case scenario that can come from this lawsuit? Well, we're asking the court to make a declaration that what Trump did is unconstitutional and to remind the IRS that they have to do their job, basically. So, And that's all we want. That's our original lawsuit with the IRS over this issue was just to tell them, do your job. You know, you were hired for this. Don't look the other way when you see the speeder. Don't give favorable treatment to somebody because they're a priest or a minister or because of whatever religion they are. So uh, we think that's the best or uh, another possible outcome is that uh, the government's going to argue, well, this doesn't really do anything. This doesn't really change anything, in which case that's also a victory. In other words, he told the religious right, the evangelicals, that he was going to give them this big favor. But if they argue that, well, this doesn't really do anything, it doesn't have any teeth, well, then we can say, well, yeah, well, we forced you to say that. You, you just did this you know, window dressing, ceremonial thing to make – to make it look like you're doing something for evangelicals when actually you're not doing anything at all with this order. Um, Christopher Hitchens was quite fond of the fact that he shared his birthday with Thomas Jefferson, who famously used the term building a wall of separation between church and state in 1802. Uh, Hitchens was proud to live in Washington, D.C. and of becoming a U.S. citizen, citing that our secular constitution was unique on the planet and considered the Establishment Clause one of the most important guarantees of American liberty. Scott and I like to make the point that secularism is not a label of the other, um, nor is it in competition with religion in American law, but rather does just as much to protect religious groups from each other as it does to protect non-believers from theistic regulation or requirement. Freedom of religion must, of course, also include freedom from religion, a concept which is, of course, reflected in the name of your organization. To you, what makes the separation so important, and why is it so often dismissed or ignored by things like religious discrimination and singular religious displays on public land? Yeah, so uh, you, you said it right there, and it was Christopher Hitchens' birthday a couple of weeks ago, and we got to we got to replay part of the interview we did with him 
in uh, 2007, the year that his book came out, God is Not Great. That was really fun to hear the voice again. It was a sad loss when he died. Uh, was it 2011, I think? So, um, uh, and he's right about the uh, First Amendment, and it is. We were the first country in history to turn everything upside down. Before our country was formed, constitutions had some umbrella authority above the people. It would have been the monarch or the sovereignty or the Lord or the church or, you know what I mean, some or a dictator. Um, constitutions and governmental structures had some top-down authority, uh, which supposedly gave the authority to go ahead and form a government. But what we did was we flipped it upside down. We kicked out the king. We had a revolutionary war. We're, we're a rebellious people. We, you know, we booted out the Lord, the, the master, the sovereign, the monarch. And instead of having a um, top-down sovereign authority, the first words of our Constitution are, we the people. We have a bottom-up kind of view of things. The people themselves have these rights that are not granted by a god or by a government. It's because we just have them. We acknowledge these rights. So if the government starts interfering with people's religious views, either to advance or hinder it, then that's taking away freedom of conscience from we the people. In, in this country, the government can't tell you what God to worship or to worship any God at all. We're free to worship whatever God we want. And as you rightly pointed out, this is good for religion. And religion in this country has flourished. Look at all the churches and denominations. Because the government has backed off and is neutral and said, hey, you guys, we're, we're not going to do anything about it. You've you got to talk among yourselves here and figure it out or not. So Ann Gaylor, the, the principal founder of our group um, back in the 70s, she, she used to say, there can be no religious freedom without the freedom to dissent. So you can't say yes if you can't say no, right? So you have to be able to have non-believers. And we kind of think that the existence of atheists and agnostics in the United States of America actually strengthens religious freedom because then it validates the believer's freedom to say yes. Because if we can't say no, they can't say yes either. Everybody's forced. So, um, And uh, when she started the foundation in the 70s, it was just two people. And now we have more than 28,000 around the country. We have five full-time attorneys plus two full-time legal fellows. So we have seven attorneys in the building right now. And this summer we're going to have eight legal interns. So there's going to be 15 legal people working on these cases. Uh, and it's really a blast. There's nothing more fun than suing the government. Uh, or, <laughs> Danny's laughing, there's nothing more fun than suing the government and winning, actually. So, uh, sure. Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the key right there. We did a. Um, uh, I like that you mentioned uh, uh, FFRF now has membership of around twenty eight thousand. You said. Yeah, more. It might be closer to thirty. We're we're switching our CRM, so the numbers are a little unsure, but it's at least twenty eight thousand right now. Well, congratulations on that. We did a, a two part episode a few months ago about the Church of Scientology. And uh, while it's very difficult to get uh, numbers on their membership, they claim as many as 10 million. Um, more organizations that try to figure out the number that aren't actually part of Scientology, meaning they're more trustworthy, have said that they are down to about 25,000, which means that the Freedom from Religion Foundation may well have more members than the entire Church of Scientology. Wow. Well, I guess that's something to talk about. And by the way, we don't inflate the numbers. We actually have records for 
more than 100,000 people, but these are not all currently paid up. So we only count the people who are paid up in good standing. So there's a lot of people who think they are members, like they go on Facebook and they, they like you with thumbs up, and they but they haven't paid and joined, so we don't count them. We don't count the likes and the supporters. It's just the actual voting members of the group that we count. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned nothing's more fun than suing the government and winning. Um, uh, but through this through this uh, last couple of days and this lawsuit you put out, and and not that we have any reason to think that he is, but if President Trump was listening right now, what would you have to say to him? Well, I would remind him that he is the president, a public official in a secular country, and a secular government is neutral. The secular government cannot take sides and cannot favor religion over non-religion. He can have his personal views, but um, uh, I would remind him that the courts and our history have made America great because our government is neutral. And the First Amendment, if I wonder if he's ever read it, um, because, you know, he thought that he could um, repeal the Johnson Amendment. He, maybe he didn't realize that he couldn't do that, you know. He said, I'm going to repeal the Johnson Amendment. Well, he can't do that. So maybe he just doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't understand the First Amendment. But uh, I would remind him that before the five freedoms are acknowledged in the First Amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom to petition the government, those five freedoms that are acknowledged which are sometimes collectively called freedom of conscience, you know, in that First Amendment. Before those are acknowledged, first, there's a non-freedom, and that's called the Establishment Clause. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting, and then there's the other five freedoms. So there's a non-freedom. In other words, the government's hands are tied. The Establishment Clause means the government... The government doesn't have that freedom. It's the people that have the freedom. So when the when the government speaks, the government has to be neutral. In fact, the government's hands are tied. You and I have free speech. You and I can say what we want. You know, we're you know we're 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 American citizens. So the trick is to distinguish. And I would tell Donald Trump, uh, when you speak as an individual, you can say whatever you want. But when you're speaking as president you cannot endorse or hinder somebody's religion. You are breaking the law. You are violating the Constitution. And that's kind of what our lawsuit's aimed at. The president has overstepped his authority by picking sides. The government can't interfere and pick sides when it comes to religious matters. What do you think, Danny? Was that okay? Uh, that's about, that about sums it up. Yeah, yeah Danny's sitting here <laughs> listening, and uh, um, he ought to say something, right? Say, say amen, right? Amen. Uh. <laughs> um, we've collected uh, some questions from our, our peers, and um, we wanted to just ask them on their behalf, a, a couple of them if we could for you right now. Um, Matt Cawthorn at Captain Atheism um, and uh, writes a, a blog called Epicurean Pop on WordPress.com. It says, in the light of YouTube scandal, Daddy of Five, in cases like the WBC, do you think it's warranted to put legal restrictions on religious parents to curtail their ability to punish and influence their children? Would it be okay to take away the children of groups or individuals like the WBC for the safety of the children? 
If so, where do you draw the line? Yeah, well, we already have laws protecting children from bad parents, from neglect uh, and from abuse, right? If parents are abusing children, the state can come in and take the kids away from the parents. However, um, the Christian Science Lobby has effectively got uh, exemptions built into most states where if the parents are doing these negligent actions as a religious exercise, then the state should not prosecute them, which we think is wrong. So we don't think there should be any difference between a religious or non-religious parent who's abusing a child. If the abuse is happening, the state should have the right. Um, there was a big case in Massachusetts, um, I forget their name, Tipple or something, um, where the Christian Science parents refused medical treatment. They didn't take the kids to the hospital, and the kids died a horrible, preventable death because of religion. And the court said, if the parents want to make martyrs of themselves to prove their faith, they're free to do so. But a parent does not have the right to make martyrs of their children to test the parents' faith. There was a girl here in Wisconsin, um, I think it was in 2010, it wasn't that long ago, um, Kara Newman, uh, on Easter Sunday morning, she died a horrible, painful death from easily treatable diabetes. Her parents, or who were some of these right-wing believers, they took the Bible seriously because the Bible says the prayer of faith will heal the sick. If anybody's sick among you, let them anoint them with oil and bring in the elders. So they did that. They anointed the girl with oil and they brought in the church elders and prayed. They did not take her to the doctor because they thought that would violate their faith. And she died, you know, I think she was 11 or 13 at the time. So that, that girl might have grown up to think for herself and she might have been a free thing. Who knows what life she would have had. But the parents forced her to become a martyr for their faith. And we, I think that crosses the line. I think if anyone had known about it, they should have stepped in and called the authorities and rescued that girl from her, you know, from her murderous family, basically. They were convicted of, a, in Wisconsin, in spite of those exemptions, they were convicted of some kind of manslaughter and were given a very light sentence because they have other kids. So they, they had to serve like three months uh, out of the year for like the next five years. They had to serve some jail time. So um, the parents are unrepentant. I read that they started a coffee shop up there in Wausau, and they think that if God told them to do that, then it's right and that the authorities are wrong. So you can see in cases like this where we the people who care about morality and who care about you know the welfare of children should in some cases uh, step in and, and, and save the kids from their parents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we we touched on this in a, a, a few episodes, a couple episodes, um, a few weeks ago, about a group of extreme Mormons in Idaho who are often um, not taking their children to the hospital. The entire sect yeah, and is involved in that. There's and there's these mass graves that they're finding of kids, and Oregon too is having that. Uh, there's a wonderful organization that's called Child. Children's health care is a legal duty, and it's run by Rita Swan, who was herself a Christian scientist, whose boy died from treatable uh, uh, viral meningitis. And she's left the church since then, but since then she's realized, you know, my kid would still be alive if it wasn't for religion. So she is fighting to overturn these exemptions in many states that the Christian scientists have put into place. Children 
parents don't own their children. Parents don't even raise their children. Children raise themselves pretty much, and parents were, were lucky enough to be their facilitators and give them a place to live and food to eat. But I don't think you and I ever thought our parents raised us. I, we, we, the parents were just, you know, helping. So parents don't own the kids, and the kids should own their own thoughts. And if parents are that insecure in their faith that they have to force their kids to go along with their faith, then something's very wrong with their faith, I think. Indeed. What do you think, Danny? Um, Did I, do I own you? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Did you raise yourself, Danny, or did? Uh... I think I did a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, you, you and the in the DI and the Marines, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when this comes up, a few things make me um, more upset. A uh, few things few things rise my passion uh, more than when people decide that not only are they going to inculcate their children, but they're going to enforce some kind of doctrinal law on them. Uh, I very much like what um, uh, Richard Dawkins says about this. There are no such things as Muslim children, as Christian children, as Buddhist children. There are only children of Muslim, Christian, or Buddhist parents. Um, there's a clear, clear distinction here. Children have not yet reached the age to make decisions in any other part of their life. We've decided this in the social contract. Why is it that that as a society, we insist on referring to three- and four-year-olds as being Muslim or Christian when we don't use any other kind of label. We wouldn't call a four-year-old a Republican or a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat, uh, yet we insist that we apply their parents' faith to them, making them somehow not only uh, suggesting that they are the property of their parents, but the property of a doctrine itself. Yeah, well, that goes back to tribalism, you know, um, because we evolved in these small tribal groups where we had to keep an insular kind of provincial control over our own people. And here's these outside groups out there that are invading and wanting to take over. So we, we viewed our kids as our tribe, basically, as opposed to kids of other tribes. And then religion becomes this sort of meta-tribe. And so Catholics think their kids are Catholics. And, uh, you know, that's a natural thing that we need to grow out of. And I think Dawkins is right about that. We need to... Um, you know, and and even as a Christian parent, you would think you would rather the children make up their own minds and not be forced to choose your religion. Wouldn't wouldn't it have more value? I think the Amish do it this way. The Amish let their kids go. They send them out into the world and they say you're free to go. And if you want to come back, it's your own choice. And when they do come back, then it, it, then they own it. You know, I used to preach that God doesn't have any grandchildren. There's no grandchildren of God. Each person has to become their own choice. So you would think that believers would want that. They would want the children to have complete freedom of conscience so that they can choose. If it's really the truth, they shouldn't be afraid that they would choose something false. But but when it comes to actual physical harm and, and illness and death, of course, I you know, um, in that case, I think we should view them as children of society, not children of a particular religion. Yeah, that's that's well said. I, I I very much hope that we can sort of begin to shift our attitude towards the way that we that we treat children as we move. Um, uh, you know, we're in the 21st century now. We we need to begin to reject some of these old tribalistic ideas. Um, my my former co-host was Nathaniel Walters. Uh, he did the first eight episodes of ISM uh, with me. This is episode 24 that we're doing tonight. Um, he is a prominent atheist periscoper. Um, he uh, does a lot of work uh, on Periscope. I believe he also does some work on YouTube. You can follow him on Twitter 
at Atheist Husker, and you can follow him on Periscope also at Atheist Husker. Um, he is a atheist activist and has been involved uh, in Texas with a few fights. I know that he stood up against singular religious displays um, and did some work with the Orange County atheists, uh, sort of some outreach to the homeless, uh, some humanitarian and charitable causes. He wanted us to, to ask you the following. Um, he believes mm-hmm. that we do not have a unified front in the secular community. He says the secular community attacks in much the same way that the theistic community does. We get away from our common message and have fractured. How do we get back to a united front that doesn't attack religion uh, while ensuring we protect the Constitution? Also, how do we ensure we embrace the theistic community to bring them into the fold? Yeah, well, that's about four questions in one. Um, Well, free thinkers are individuals. And, you know, there's talk about the atheistic movement, but I don't think it's really a movement in the sense, uh, you know, most movements have followers, right? But the atheistic community doesn't have any followers. We're all leaders, right? There's, You know, what if I, or, or what if Danny was to stand up and say, I am the bishop of atheism for Dane County. And you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be silly. People, people would say, well, who the heck are you? I'm going to think for myself, right? So we don't have the same model that religion has where there's a, in most religions, there's a hierarchical top-down Vatican structure where there's clergy and all that, and then there's people down at the bottom who sit in the pews. Uh, the atheistic movement really is not really a movement in, in a comparable sense that we have to have a united front. And, in fact, I think if we were to ever announce that we had a united front, a whole bunch would say, no way, I'm going to think for myself. So we, we pride ourselves in not having a united front. In fact, I like the original motto of the United States uh, better than in God We Trust, obviously, our original motto was E Pluribus Unum. And you sometimes hear people say, well, that means united we stand. No, it doesn't. E Pluribus Unum, out of many come run, that actually means divided we stand. We don't have to agree. We don't have to think the same way. We don't have to march in step. You know, we can all be different. And, you know, you don't have to join our group or another group or AU or AA or AHA or whatever, or you can join all of them. In fact, a lot of people join... American Humanists and American Atheists and Freedom from Religion because they want the literature from all the groups. So it's not like a church denomination where we all have to... And by the way, religion doesn't have a united front either. They're all split up. So I kind of think that there's value in not having a united front. There's value in having this sort of alphabet soup of groups that can that can go lobby Congress on behalf of this and that, and we all have our different ways of doing it, right? A lot of people are comfortable joining FFRF because we tend to focus on state church and we are a can-do. You know that old saying, after all is said and done, usually more is said than done. Well, we want to get things done. You know, there's value in talking. So um, what happens then, which is really nice, and I think your, your questioner raises a good point, is on an ad hoc basis, not formal, not like some structured thing, but on an ad hoc basis, when issues come up that are of concern to all of our groups, we do cooperate. And in, like in the Hind decision that we took in 2006, every other group in the country, every other state church group and free thought group signed on. They either wrote their own amicus briefs, and we all worked together on this, which made it more beautiful. It wasn't like we were all forced to do it. It was really a, a you know, spontaneous thing. And with many of the cases that go to the courts, uh, 
our attorneys are talking with their attorneys, and we're all buzzing with each other, and how can we help each other? So there is a camaraderie, even though we're kind of friendly competitors for the same same dollars, I guess, same members. There is a good kind of fun, spontaneous, voluntary cooperation that goes on, which is the way we free thinkers like it. It's bottom-up rather than top-down. And if it was forced and top-down, that would be kind of phony, and that would almost kind of tie the hands of groups. You know, we all have different leadership styles and different agendas. Some of us are more concerned with social issues, maybe, or LGBT or feminist issues, and others are more intellectual and straight state church. So you find where you fit, right? So there is, I think, uh, an informal ad hoc united front without being forced from the top down which which makes it even stronger well, that is that is excellent um a friend of ours and, a, and another former co-host of the show, Amadeus at Amadeus Almighty on Twitter, has like yourself debated Matt Slick. Um, <clears throat> he also wrote our theme music for the show. Uh, shout out for that. Um, he wants uh, to know your thoughts about your debate with Matt Slick and what you think the best approach is when it comes to debating presuppositions. Yeah, presuppositionalists. Yeah, I'm going to do one uh, in a month in in Houston. Um, and then in October, I'm doing a debate at Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is Norman Geisler's seminary in South Carolina. And this is going to be fun because uh, uh, in October, Southern Evangelical Seminary is having a big conference of apologetics. And so there's all these young apologetic students that are coming to this conference. And at the end of the conference, they're having a debate where they're going to show them how to debate an atheist. And I'm the atheist. They're, they're flying me in there. To, and it's going to be in this huge megachurch. And there's going to be all these smart people with their Bibles and their books. You know what I mean? So uh, they're, going to, they're going to show them how to debate me. So um, uh, um, Christian apologetics. Uh, and the word apologetics, by the way, doesn't mean apologize. I'm sure you guys know that. But Christian apologetics is not unified. They don't have a united front. In fact, there's at least five different approaches to apologetics. And one of those approaches is a, is a weird one. It's called presuppositionalism. And there's a lot of these Calvinists and, uh, you know, these types of Reformed church that really like the idea of presuppositionalism, which is unlike the traditional kind of debate, which is on based on evidence, let's say. Uh, what the presuppositionalists try to do is they they say right up front, they say, yeah, we are begging the question. Uh, you can't accuse us of begging the question. We're not going to give you evidence. We don't need to give you evidence. We're begging the question. But you atheists are also begging the question, too, because how do you know that logic is logical? Aren't you just assuming it? How do you know that reason is reasonable? Aren't you just begging the question? And so what they say is this is just a fight of begging questions, and our begging the question is better than your begging the question. And, and because our begging the question makes better answers to life than your begging the question. Uh, so presuppositionalism is kind of a, a, a surrender of evidence, and it's kind of trying to just drag us atheists down to their level, is what it is, saying, well, yeah, we're bad, but you're just as bad or worse than us, so therefore we're, we're less bad than you are. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but in a sense, that's kind of what presuppositionalism is doing. It's not addressing as directly the issues as a lot of other types. I have one of the books on my shelf here. Um, let me turn and look for it for a second. 
But this is something that yeah, Corey and I were discussing last night, so I'm glad that you, you're answering it this way. Yeah, so when you're debating one of these theologians or apologists, it's kind of good to know what kind of school they're coming from, right? Do they want? Are they natural theologians or are they, um, you know, are they evidential? Um, there's classical apologetics, then there's evidential apologetics, then there's the cumulative case apologetics, which means it's a likelihood thing. There's the presuppositional, uh, and then there's the reformed epistemology apologetics. And you know, you don't have to be an expert to recognize that all the experts disagree with each other. They can't even get their own act together about what's the best approach uh, to argue these things. So uh, you might debate uh, a Christian and prove to them that the Bible is contradictory, and they might nod their head and say, yeah, I agree with that. So, uh, the, you know, you you, you got to kind of know what what, you're, what kind of animal you're dealing with. So, I don't, you know, I debated Matt Slick at least three times, and I don't know which debate you're referring to exactly. I remember I went to um, Idaho um, where he lives. It was in Boise. He lives in Boise, I think. And uh, he invited me on his radio show, and um, so he picked me up at the hotel in his car, and it was kind of fun. He drove me to this Christian radio station. And uh, they're all very sweet there, you know, how the Christians are. And uh, in the car, driving to the radio station, Matt Slick said, Idaho is a great state. I can drive this car with a concealed carry weapon with me right now. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, oh, what am I getting myself into? I'm going into this. Yikes. <laughs> let, let you know before the debate that he's packing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, you know, I mean, I mean, that's the law there, but I felt a little a little bit weird. I don't know. I, that's not something I would want to bring up. Uh, but uh, well, By the way, we're going to have a debate, and by the way, I've got a gun. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to settle the argument. <laughs> Um, just a, a, a quick question for Danny. Danny, what was it like taking on the monumental task of helping your dad research for God, the most unpleasant character in all fiction? <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty tedious, but um, you know I was happy to do it. Um, it took several hours of going over uh, Bible verses and different you know different versions of the Bible um, and making sure everything was uh, matched up correctly. So it was it was definitely tedious, but you know I'm happy to do those kinds of things and help my dad out and um, you know get information out to the world through books. He did a good job. There is a mistake in the book, but it's not his fault because I added I added some verses later, and I I, I said Isaiah instead of uh, Jeremiah, so it's a small mistake. But uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I watched a. Um... A video a couple of days ago about you uh, discussing that that process of going through all those biblical quotes. You said you had fifteen hundred biblical quotes. Yeah, fifteen hundred passages. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that was um, pretty surprising. You know, it's based on Richard Dawkins' famous sentence about the God of the Bible, and he Richard Dawkins has nineteen nasty adjectives of God, and I found uh, eight more actually. And so part part one of the book is called Dawkins Was Right, and I document all of his, you know, his accusations. Part two of the book is called Dawkins Was Too Kind, because he missed a few. So um, uh, it was a lot of work, and then it was Richard Dawkins who suggested making it a book. I just thought I was helping him make his uh, slide presentation, 
And he said, and this is a pun, actually, he said, this would make a good book. Not the good book, but a good book. So, <laughs> so um, it was kind of an accidental book. But, uh, boy, all you have to do is, is read it. You know, Richard Carrier said that he read the Bible from beginning to end, and when he got to the last page, he shut the Bible and said, yep, I'm an atheist. And, and Isaac <laughs> Asimov said the same thing. There's, there's, there's no more potent force for atheism than reading the Bible. If people would just read it. And so how can Dawkins and I be faulted? We're asking people to read it. Please open it. Please read this book and see what's in it, right? That's what they're wanting us to do. So that's what we're wanting them to do. Exactly. Yeah, that's the, it's all in there. All of the stuff that, that as a humanist, as, as somebody who uh, appreciates life, um, any any cursory glance at uh, at this book should be enough to say whatever ideology that's describing, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, the, the Bible is is a very very strong tool for um, for for deconversion. Um, not to not to overuse uh, Mr. Hitchens, but uh, I believe um, he said at some point um, people keep telling me that I should stop judging religion based on its fanatics. I should stop uh, judging religion based on its extremists. Well, that's fine. Why should I? I will happily judge religion based on its authority figures and on its doctrine, and that is more than enough to condemn it. Yeah, well, I don't think you can overuse Christopher Hitchens. He's, he's really quotable. Um, so this touches on the question about presuppositionalism. And I'm going to do this during my next two debates, because basically what they're talking about is the Bible. They're going to presuppose that the Bible is the revealed word of God and has all truth. All this presuppositionalist apologetics, it basically comes down to we want the permission to use our Bible as our text, right? And so I'm going to do exactly that, at least during opening statements, is attack the Bible. Okay, let's presuppose you're right. All right, let's, let's play your game, okay? Let's presuppose that the God you believe in is the God of Scripture, and the Scriptures are inerrant. Let's look at it and see what it says. And, of course, that doesn't disprove a God. That might disprove a good God, but it doesn't actually disprove a God. But the point to be made is this. After you've looked at the Bible, ask yourself a simple question. What is more likely, that this book was a product of this invisible, intangible, immaterial, cosmic being communicating to the human race, or is it more likely that this book is the product of a bunch of ancient, sexist, patriarchal, homophobic, Israelite priests? What is more likely to be the case, and what would you say about other religious writings, like the Koran? or like the Bhagavad Gita, or like the Book of Mormon? Is it more likely that they actually are inspired from some cosmic dimension, or that they are the product of human beings? And when you look at the Bible, it screams humanity. It screams tribal alpha males who want to control their territory and their females and the resources, and they want to strike fear into the hearts of the followers. It screams humanity. And so it doesn't disprove that, but what do you think is more likely to be the case when you look at that book? Indeed, I'm. I'm. I, I want to say that I am. Um, I'm. I'm very. I'm very pleased to have access to some of the debates that you've done with presuppositionalists on on YouTube and around the internet, because um, I think that of all of the uh, public atheists, the people that are actually out having debates in front of audiences, 
um, you are you are cutting the ground here um, probably more than than anybody else is. The conversation that Scott and I had last night was surrounding the idea that what what people insist on calling the new atheist is sort of uh, a movement that was happening. I don't even want to use the word movement. It, it was sort of a, a thing that happened culturally and academically uh, in say 2007, 2008. Now. Uh, you and people like uh, uh, Dawkins and Hitchens had been talking about atheism uh, for decades before this, but something about the 2007-2008 era is when all of these books um, came out, God is Not Great, The God Delusion. Uh, Bill Maher put out his documentary, Religious, I think in 2008. Uh, it, sort of, it sort of became uh, this rallying cry of, there are atheists in the world, and we no longer have to remain silent. There is all of this information that has been uh, in, the, in, the, in the literature for, for centuries in some cases, and it's time for us to distill all of that and make a modern argument that sharpens everybody uh, and, and lets them know how to fight back against religious claims. That kind of, I think, serves as a bit of a marker where my generation um, was able to get a hold of those books and sort of re-engage. It was sort of a, a soft reboot, if you will, on, on, the, on the atheist theist debate. Um, and it, it, it served everybody very well. People started to argue uh, against religion in, in much greater numbers, at least the layman was. Um, but it seems like since then, since the, the presuppositionist argue, arguments are, are not as uh, heavily talked about in those books, that in the last 10 years, the religious side has sort of had to they were sent reeling a little bit by this sudden outpouring. And there seems to be this resurgence of coming up with a stronger, favored, ultimate way of doing apologetics. And this seems to rely on sort of the William Lane Craig, Matt Slick style of doing it, where you have the ontological argument, the transcendental argument, or the argument about objective morality. Um, all three of those are supposed to be these silver bullets against atheists that are pulled out constantly. And I think that you are the best person uh, that I could name, period, who is fighting against those in new and thoughtful uh, ways. Um, and, and I want to thank you and congratulate you for that. But it, it seems to me that what we, what we need to do is try to shift that argument so that we stop accepting the burden of proof. It seems like the reason these arguments are used is because they sort of, in return, push us back. I've seen a lot of atheists just, just on social media get hit with one of these arguments and it sort of it sort of rocks them back on their heels a little bit. They don't they're they're not well equipped to handle the ontological or transcendental argument. But it seems like the only difference between that and saying that the earth is six thousand years old or that there was a great flood that drowned all the creatures of the earth against everything we know about scientific fact um, is that their burden of proof is being taken out of the natural world and being put into the ontological or philosophical one. These people say, well, I can justify objective morality and you can't. I can justify where logic comes from and you can't. I can justify what was before the Big Bang and you can't because I get to just plug in the word God. And so many people on our side of the debate immediately get rocked back by that and they have a difficult time responding. I think what's important to remember is that, no, they're saying that you can't justify it but they can't justify it either, regardless of their claim. All they're saying is they can justify it based on God. But since they have yet to demonstrate that a God exists, they're not actually furthering the conversation at all. We need to stop letting them say, I can justify logic and you can't, therefore I'm better, just because they say that God did it, since we can't prove that God is actually a thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, and at a certain level, this is extremely important. A philosophical debate, but I don't think most 
atheists and non-believers in the world really care much about any of that. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I don't think most Christians do either. I mean, ask the average Christian, how many of you came to your faith of God as a result of contemplating the ontological argument? None of them, you know what I mean? It's not like that's really the issue here. This is all kind of sophistry, you know. And William Lane Craig, by the way, is not a presuppositionalist. He does use the moral argument. He he would fall more into the um, classical apologetics line. In fact, he refutes presuppositionalist arguments a lot, uh, which tells you something, that the these apolog- apologists, these apologetic schools, have more problem with each other than they have with us atheists. They're all fighting each other on these differences of different approaches, but uh, they they do agree that there's a God. But I think you did say something that is right, and maybe I haven't thought about that much. You said um, shifting the burden of proof, and that's probably what the presuppositionalists are trying to do. They're trying to say, we don't have to prove it. You have to prove that it's wrong. You have to prove that you have some basis for your intellect or logic or, you know, so, yeah, I think you're right, and it, and it does knock some atheists off their feet a bit to think, well, oh, oh, I never thought of that. How do you prove that logic is logical? Oh, I never thought of that, right? And, of course, the simple answer to that is that that's mixing logical spheres. It's an equivocation. It's like uh, to ask, you don't ask if logic is logical. You don't ask if beauty is beautiful. You don't, you know, you, that's a, it's, it's lifting yourself up and arguing. It's like saying... Um, um, musicians in an orchestra, they are all playing in harmony with each other, right? So why aren't orchestras all playing in harmony with each other? Explain that. You know what I mean? It's like a stupid question. It's a, it's a dumb question because you're raising it to another level. It's like saying a grain of sand is hard. You know, a grain of sand, you can scratch something with it. But sand is soft. How do you explain that? How do you explain? Oh my goodness! There's a problem. There's a logical problem here. It's not a logical problem. It's just confusing logical sphere. You, when you move up to a higher level of thinking, and, and these, a lot of these presuppositionalists are doing exactly that. They think they're catching you in an aha. Have you ever thought of why is the sand soft? Aha! You have, and so all you have to do is say, "Come on, let's 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 get back to your evidence, right?" Um, and, you know, most of us would say, well, logic is not revealed. Logic is not some absolute thing. Logic is a tool. It's one of the tools of thought that we use. It's not a thing. It doesn't have to be justified above and beyond itself. It's the way we think. It's the way we formalize our thinking. It's not like, and but then when you put a word on it, then you lift it up to another level and you say, well, then where does that word come from? So, um so you're kind of you're, you're kind of right. It, it, people get kind of thrown off balance. Like, well, how do how do I justify my atheism? Oh, as if we had to prove it, right? I don't believe in leprechauns, but can I prove it? Well, you know what? I had a box of Lucky Charms, and there's a, a leprechaun on the box. <laughs> you had some, didn't you, Danny? Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you explain that? There's evidence for for leprechauns, right? It must be true. Must be true. Yeah. We'll start hanging garlic my door right now. <laughs> Danny's going to hang garlic over his doorway. Um, will that help you stop? He's trying to stop smoking, by the way. Should I say that out loud? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, good. Uh, the pressure's on now. Maybe the, you have to quit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the garlic would help, right? <laughs> um, we have uh, another question 
Um, you know what, Scott? Why don't I let you take this one? This is from uh, this is from our friend Jay. This is Jay, who goes by at Derp underscore Prometheus. He's a member of the Giordano Bruno Foundation, a humanist organization in Germany. He says, even in Germany, where the majority of the population doesn't believe in the supernatural claims of religion, about 56% are members of the Catholic or the Lutheran Church and pay church tax. The reason for this is that the church's reputation is much better than it deserves. But people don't want to hear the truth that most of the charitable causes that they think are funded by their church are actually state-funded. Why is this the case, in your opinion? And what would be an effective way to get people to accept the truth? Could street epistemology play a role in this? So I think in Germany you can opt out. Um, in many of those countries, they do have an official religion. Uh, in Iceland, for example, the... Um, Lutheran Church is the official religion, and 1% of your taxes go to the church, which kind of means the church doesn't have to hustle. They don't have to work hard. They're getting this money from the government to run, you know. In Europe, they've got a whole bunch of gorgeous but empty churches over there because they don't have to fill them up. They're getting money from the taxes to do it, right? In, in our country, where we have state church separation, every pastor on every street corner has to get out and hustle for members, right? So that's more competitive. But... Um, I'm pretty sure in Germany, and we were over there a couple of times, um, um, I learned a great word over in Germany, confessionslosen, uh, which means confessionless. Like, we, like I would say I'm godless. Well, in Europe, uh, the, the, the word they use for like your religion is your confession. What confession are you? And so the atheists over there in Germany, we were in Cologne uh, by that huge cathedral, they said, we are confessionsless. And so they have a word, confessionslosen, which I think is a cute word. Um, so I'm pretty sure they can opt out over there. And in Norway, they went through this huge, massive, the, um, the, the Norwegian humanists for a while were the largest humanist group in the world because they had a state church, but they allowed you to opt out if you filled out this form. So the Norwegian humanists went door to door with this form and told people, did you know? You can opt out. You don't have to have your 1% going to the church. You can actually go to the humanists. And people said, yeah. So they got all these people, tax money going to the humanist association, and they were doing very, very well because of tax money. So, uh, and then later uh, in Sweden, just disestablished the church over there. They had an established evangelical Lutheran church. Uh, but you're right. Uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, the church right in the corner by the uh, state capitol has a food kitchen. And it's the uh, Episcopal Church. And people can go in and you see these lines of homeless people getting food. And when you walk by, you think, wow, the church is doing this really great thing. Isn't that wonderful? Church people are really good and charitable. Turns out that the money for that is coming from the county. We taxpayers are, are paying for it. The, the church gets the credit and we taxpayers get the bill for it, basically. <laughs> but it looks like they're getting the credit because they, you know, because they're doing it. Well, they're letting their building be used for that, you know. So uh, there is this perception that religion is doing all this good stuff. When I read a study, it's an old study, so maybe it's not accurate anymore, but like 15 years ago that it's only about 15% of churches in the United States that do anything that you would call charitable, like a soup kitchen or a halfway house or helping, you know what I mean, the actual charitable work. And they're mostly liberal churches. 
so 85% of the churches in the United States that are tax-free are not doing anything at all that you'd consider charitable. They're doing their own ministry, their missionary work or their choir robes or the pastor's salary or the hymn books, you know, that kind of thing. So there is this impression that religion is doing all this great work, but usually it's much, much, much less than you would think. And it's not any more than what secular non-believers do as well. And Freedom from Religion Foundation has a charitable arm. We call it non-belief relief, where we are actually giving money to help disaster victims and in, in special cases of uh, like these atheist bloggers that are being threatened with murder, and some of them have been murdered with machetes, to help them get out of the country to find a safe place to live. So non-believers are just as involved in charity as the believers, and it's just a myth that it's only religion that makes you good. And so his second part of that question is, do you think that um, street epistemology could play a role in, um, you know, taking the, the, the beliefs that the church is where every, all the good is coming from and allowing people to understand that the state is doing quite a bit of it? Yeah, of course. Street epistemology is a great idea. Um, Andrew, what's his last name? Um, Magna Bosco. Yeah, yeah, he's doing a great job with that. Anthony, and, um, Anthony Magna Bosco. Yeah, and then, uh, of course, um, Peter Bogosian with uh, his book on uh, Manual for Creating Atheists, for getting out in the street and actually talking with people. Um, and uh, I like to do that, too. When I walk home from work, I go through campus, and there's often these street preachers out there. So I'll just throw them a couple of questions, you know, and uh, uh, I'll ask them, why did Jesus say you should beat your slaves? <laughs> and and the guy said, Jesus never said that. Where did Jesus say that? Show it to me. So I quote him, well, look up Luke chapter 12, verse 47. And he opens it up and he reads it. And he, oh, Jesus did say that. Huh? Well, he didn't mean it. He said it, but he didn't mean it. So, you know, you're, you're engaging people in actually confronting. And any way we can get people to think, and of course, we don't want a top-down thing. We don't want to preach at them. We want them to think for themselves, right? You want to give them information so that they are comfortable enough to trust their own reason. So, yeah, I think that could make a difference. I mean, the only way change is going to happen is with some kind of activism and some kind of awareness. Indeed. Um, it, it's it's kind of nice how this has worked out because it, it dovetails rather perfectly into um, another question that we received. This is from a guest that we had on the program just a couple of weeks ago in our uh, inculcation um, uh, episode. Um, uh, this person asks, people like Bart Campolo are encouraging people to build well-connected secular communities that seem to work a lot like churches. What do you think of these efforts, and are there any hidden downsides? Yeah, so that was a nice segue. I think this whole show was intelligently designed. You know, How do you explain it? <laughs> It can't just be coincidence. It has to be some higher higher plan to it all. It's kind of like the guy who says, um, how do you explain how all these rivers were made to flow right along the state boundaries? How did they do that? It's incredible. They must have taken a huge engineering project. How did they divert all that water to flow right along? Boy, that's amazing. So, um, Oh, my word. So, yeah. So, but... Um, um, but yeah, we had Bart Campolo on our radio show about a month or two ago. He, you know, he and his dad wrote this book together. His dad's still uh, a strong evangelical preacher, Tony Campolo, and uh, uh, Bart is just very open with his family. And, to, and he's lucky because his loving family 
they're handling this. They disagree, but they still are a family. And in a lot of families, that just doesn't work. And so Bart comes out of a strong communal Christian lifestyle, and he's translating that now into humanism. And over there at the University of Southern California, he started a um, humanist, not a church. It's not like a church, but it's like the same kind of community and sharing and values and getting together that you do find in church. And most of the good things that come out of church are human things. They're humanistic things. They're not religious teaching. The religious teachings are mostly divisive and dangerous, but the good stuff is shared by all religions and all non-religious people as well. And I like what he's doing. I'm in, in, in a month, I'm going down to Houston for this debate, and the next day I'm going to talk with one of the Oasis groups. Mike Ouse has the Houston Oasis, and it's a Sunday morning meeting of atheists and agnostics and non-believers or whoever. You don't have to be a non-believer, uh, and it's it's kind of like church, but kind of not. They it, you know they structure it differently, but it's a get together, and they like it, and they can they have friends, and then they go have parties, and then they share things, and they you know all of that. There's also Sunday assembly, and there's a lot of Unitarian congregations that have a humanist group within it too, and uh, so th- I think that's pretty amazing. There's there seems to be this human desire with most of us to just congregate and get together with other people of similar minds, if not exactly the same, at least similar minds. And uh, in my case, in Annie Lloyd's case, uh, we don't feel, um, you know, a strong need to get together with non-believers every Sunday because we're, we have it all week long. On Sunday morning, we want to take Sunday morning literally and treat it as a day of rest and and just kind of sleep in and relax. But uh, other people feel that need, and I think it's great. And it's it's a way to affirm common human values that make a difference in this real world rather than in some phony supernatural world. Do you think that there could be any, uh, uh, any hidden downsides there? Are you ever concerned that given how – given humanity's um, um, capacity for groupthink – um, do you think that even something that is that is so based on the antithesis of that, something that is so much about free thought, about secularism, about individuality, do you think that there are any hidden dangers in those kinds of organizations that could lend themselves to to some kind of uh, a different or new or, or individualistic uh, doctrine that, that that could emerge, or do you think this is something that we should we should you know be completely okay with uh, with with various secularists or atheists doing? Well, I suppose there's always a danger, but, I mean, that's a a pessimistic attitude about human nature. These assemblies, these groups are voluntary, and nobody goes to it if they don't want to. Unlike religion, where you're going to suffer eternal torment. This is forced, right? You've got to go along with the status quo. So in most religious groups, not all of them, but in most religious groups, there's this this sort of a top-down control thing. But with humanist and free-thinking groups, it's a bottom-up voluntary thing. And, uh, you know, we're all different. There's, there are people at our conventions who would love to just all hold hands in a circle and sing an atheist song together, you know. They would love that. There's others who would run from the room screaming if we did that, you know. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to sing Kumbaya with them. They would feel uncomfortable. And some of them would feel like it's playing church too much because it reminds them of their church days. So uh, we have to allow variations for individuality and Nobody has to come to our convention. Nobody has to go to any of these meetings. And many of them leave after a couple of times because they just don't feel comfortable. But the ones who stay are the kinds 
who apparently need that and feel that and they're comfortable with it, and the rest just don't go. It's a kind of a self-selecting thing. I think that's what happens like with Pentecostal churches, where they pray in tongues and sing in the Spirit and do faith healing. Well, the normal mainstream Christians aren't going to go to that church. It's only the type of people who are emotionally structured like that who are going to find that kind of a church attractive. And so they all get together and they do that because that's who they are. So a free-thinking gathering isn't really plain church. And it's uh, I think the mechanism there is that anyone's free to leave if they want to. I was um, <clears throat> watching the other day your interview that you did with Jerry Coyne. And while you were speaking with yeah, him, you – I'm sorry. You yeah, asked I don't him, remember it, but you – Okay. He's a – you asked I know, him why yeah, a scientist would uh, write a book on religion. And his response was that basically religion is the only voice of opposition to science. Do you think more scientists should be outspoken on this topic, or do you think they would be best uh, serve humanity by focusing their attention in their particular field of study and not waste their time on the discussion? Yeah, I think a scientist should do whatever the scientist wants to do. And um, maybe it's good that there's not too many voices out there. I mean, do we need more preachers like me, right? Maybe it's a good thing there's not too many of us outspoken types, uh, but there's enough room in society. And so Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins and you know uh, Vic Stenger when he was alive, you know, those people are doing great things, uh, Sean Carroll and, uh, and others. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I think it's great that they're doing that. And, I, you know, from my point of view, I champion and I applaud all of that. But we're not going to dictate to scientists where their emphasis should be. Some scientists are behind the scenes and they're not even known and maybe they're even shy, but they're doing great work, which is helping humanity and uh, indirectly, you know. So, in fact, Jerry Coyne gave kind of that answer when he was asked why he did not participate in the recent science march in D.C. He said, I've got my own ways of promoting science. He didn't want to get involved in, a, in that kind of a public thing. But uh, Oh, I know what you're talking about. It was the interview down in Houston where we did the book fair. Was that what it was? I believe it was, yeah. yeah you, it was just the two of you. It was about an hour long. Yeah. Yeah, we were both invited <laughs> to the same book festival. So. Okay. Oh, it was an excellent interview. Um, you, I've seen that you uh, identify as an agnostic atheist. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, but I've noticed that you make very, I guess for lack of a better word, Gnostic claims that God does not exist. I've heard you say that, and I've seen uh, you next to signs that, that, that say that. Um, are you a seven on the Dawkins scale? or? Well, yes and no. Um, if you're talking about formal, logical reasons for what you're, what you're claiming, you have to phrase it in matters of probability. So even Dawkins will say, you know, there was a bus sign that they had in England a few years ago. Uh, relax, there's probably no God. They use that word probably, right? So mathematically and formally, all of us non-believers would have to say the probability for the existence of God is so low that we're going to round it off to zero, right? But it's not zero. It's obviously not zero. You would say the same thing about leprechauns. 
So ask somebody, do you believe in leprechauns? Do you believe in leprechauns, Danny? Mm -hmm. Even in spite of the lucky charms? Mm -hmm. But can you prove there's no leprechauns? Absolutely not. You can't prove it. I mean, they might be hiding somewhere. The leprechauns, they might have existed back then. And so we have to intellectually allow for some degree of probability where we might be wrong, right? So there's a difference between speaking formally and speaking informally. So informally, I think all of us would say there's no leprechauns. Come on, there's no leprechauns, right? I mean, if you if you're pushed against the wall, you would have to say, well, I have to qualify that by saying, well, the probability is so low that that's why I'm saying that. Prove me wrong. Maybe I could raise the probability. So when it comes to the question of God, uh, I would say, yeah, there could be a God. It depends how you define it. And so we don't have any knowledge about this, so we're agnostic. And by the way, you can be an agnostic and an atheist because they address two di totally different things. Agnosticism. Like George H. Smith points out in his great book, uh, The Case Against God, um, agnosticism is not a halfway house or a middle point between theism and atheism. That's a false dichotomy. It's not like it's not like you can. It's not like there's a, a middle between yes I believe or no I don't believe. You either do or you don't believe. If you have a belief, you have it. If you don't, you don't. So there's no middle ground. So agnosticism is addressing not what you believe, but what you know, what you claim to know. So you can be, most agnostics would be atheistic. And there are some agnostics who are theistic, like Blaise Pascal. He was an agnostic. He said, you know, we can't know, we don't know, but you're better off believing. You know, he, you know Pascal's wager. Right. Uh, that's oversimplifying, it's simplifying it too much, but basically that's what he was saying. And so... Um, I happily admit I'm an agnostic. I don't know everything. I don't know. I don't actually know that there's no leprechauns. <laughs> but based on, or, or unicorns, who knows? But but come on, in informal talk, we round it off. And I think all science does that. What scientists do is they do experiments, and when they get to a certain 97 or 98% confidence, then they call it a fact. But there's still going to be that 2 or 3% where maybe we're wrong. And that's that's kind of cool. That's humbling. That's like saying, yeah, we've got these results and we've got these experiments and we've tested it for years and there's no evidence and so on. So we're going to we're going to go with there's no god. So I will say there is no god. And if you want to talk about a specific god, uh the god of the Bible, I would say well that god we know doesn't exist because it's it has mutually contradictory properties. It'd be like asking does a married bachelor exist? You would have to say not only does it not exist, but it can't exist. It's contradictory. So in some cases, we can say with certainty that there is no God, capital G, God of the Bible, for example. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Corey mentioned earlier, uh, one of our questions came from a guest who was on our inculcation episode, and um, he was a f former Mormon who helped bring people to the church in his position at the church. And uh, a couple weeks after that, we had Kate, um, who was a former pastor and lost her faith um, over a period of some time. And uh, a couple of questions that we asked both of them, I'd like to ask you. Um, one, you, you mentioned that it took about five years, I think, um, in one of your talks I saw for you to become an atheist. Was there ever a point in that journey where you considered deism at all? Yeah, but I didn't have the word for it, but yeah. Um, in fact, uh, Danny and I are going to go see the Book of Mormon uh, in a week or so. It's going to be funny. Have you ever seen that musical? 
It's a blast. Um, I got to see it in, uh, in uh, New York years ago. It was yeah. very, very funny. Ha, Sadiga, Ibuai. That's really funny. Uh, but, um, but yeah, as I went through my process, it took four or five years. Um, I guess looking back on it, I would say, yeah, there was a point that I would label deism, but uh, it wasn't formal. Uh, because deism itself really isn't that formal either. It's uh, the, Deism really made a lot of sense back in the 18th century before Darwin. The free thinkers like Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin that didn't have an explanation for the origin of life yet. He, but Thomas Jefferson was hinting at it. Jefferson was even saying our instincts seem to be naturally evolved. Uh, so deism was kind of a useful in-between point where you didn't believe in a personal God anymore, but you thought there was some force or some, that nature was God or, you know, like Spinoza's God or something. Um, so I guess I went through a period like that, that God, God stopped being a personal creator and God became this sort of impersonal force that doesn't, it doesn't write books and write Bibles, and you can't pray to it, and it doesn't speak, and it doesn't do miracles. But it kind of got everything going, and it wound up the machine. But now it's stepped off the stage, and we're just running on our own from now on. And that's kind of what Thomas Jefferson thought. When he talked about God, it was God and nature's God. Nature was basically the machine that this supposed force started. But uh, And Thomas, Thomas Paine said the same thing. If you read his book, uh, The Age of Reason, he's basically saying... You don't need a Bible. Just look at the trees. Just look at nature. And so, yeah, I guess I went through a period kind of like that where God became less and less tangible and more and more intangible. But I went past that stage pretty quickly into um, pretty pretty full-blown atheism. Okay. And and then the next question, um, because both of those individuals on our show were, were involved in bringing people into the church, Um Pertaining to your previous role in bringing people to God, after you left religion, did you ever feel guilt about doing that? And if so, how did you deal with it or have you? Well, I don't know if guilt is the right word. I felt, and I still feel, embarrassment that I did that. But it's kind of like when you look back at your childhood and you say, oh, my goodness, I did some stupid things when I was a kid. You know, and you wouldn't do them today, but you had no choice. You were a kid, right? You did those stupid things when you were a kid. And so now you're kind of embarrassed, and maybe you don't want anybody to know what you did. Uh, so, yeah, I look back on it, and I feel like, you know, I didn't make those people believe. They were they were making their own decisions. And even as a Christian minister, I would have thought each person has to make their own choice. So it wasn't like I was forcing them. Maybe I facilitated it. And I, there was, there's one guy, uh, Mark Griffo, a young teenager who wanted to go into the ministry, and his parents said, no, you need to go get a real job and a real career and go to college. But I told Mark, you should follow your heart, and if God's calling you, you should go into the ministry. Well, he did. He became a pastor, and he's still a pastor today. And partly, I think, because of my counsel to him, um, I'm sure there were many other factors, but I, I, I think some of the things I said to him encouraged him to continue going on into the ministry rather than some other more useful, you know, real job somewhere. So I'm, I'm, I regret that, but you know, what, what are you going to do? That's the age we were at. That's what we were thinking. And, uh, um, maybe, maybe that's why some of us feel like we have to do some reverse penance now to try to undo some of that damage. 
to try to make sure that we don't repeat those mistakes of the past. Right, and that's what I, you know, kind of equated your your work now with the FFRF. Um, I have a question about, a little off the topic of the religion we've been discussing, but about your music. And um, Julia Sweeney has a fantastic one-woman show called Letting Go of God, and I've recommended it to several people over the years since I saw it because it's just such a great, gentle way of explaining how it's okay to examine your beliefs. But I just recently discovered that you composed and performed some of the music for that show. So um, I want to know, how did that come about? Were you two already acquaintances, or did she approach you, or...? Yeah, yeah, um, and it's a funny show. If you haven't seen it, it's really hilarious. It's just, um, um, you know, wet your pants funny almost. Uh, but um, she um, she had read one of my books, uh, Losing Faith in Faith, and then she met Annie Laurie first in, in Los Angeles. They gave a talk together, and she told us she was working on a play, and in fact, Annie Laurie and I and a bunch of other people, uh, she she wanted input and suggestions. And so Annie Laurie gave her a bunch of stuff about how the Bible treats women, and I gave her something or other. And in, in, in fact, she tried it out on us, some of the working versions of her play, before she actually formalized it. And we got to see some of the early versions of that. So um, then she asked if I would do music for her. So I did. I did about 20 or 40 different musical clips, because the, the, the movie's called Letting Go of God, so I thought, well, why don't I use that musical theme from um, Breaking Up is Hard to Do? You know what I mean? That old song, Breaking Up. And I re- I kind of changed, I changed the melody a little bit. Well, it turns out she didn't really use much of that at all. She just kept one little piano thing that I did. And when you watch the movie and you see the um, uh, where she's saying goodbye to God, you, you know, it's like you're breaking up with your boyfriend and he's got his right. suitcase on the front porch. And you're saying goodbye, it was great while it lasted, but it couldn't last forever. Goodbye, God. You know, it's really funny. And so in the background, you hear a little bit of music playing. Well, that's me playing the piano. That's that little bit of composed variation on that song. But uh, So it wasn't a great, it wasn't a huge contribution. It was fun to be a part of it. Well, it was just fantastic to find the connection. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to... um, you know, take a few minutes here and, and say anything that you want to say about FFRF or about the atheism theism debate or, or what you would say to anyone listening who's, who's doubting and, and maybe looking for some, some help. Well, first I want to say on this question of music, stay tuned for some of Danny Barker's free thought songs, which he tells me he's working on. He's a great guitarist, by the way. I, I don't know if you've heard him play his music. Uh, and I'm I trying to get him to... Uh, no. I'm I'm trying to suggest, and he says he wants to uh, set to music some free thought lyrics. So um, I think it'd be a, I think it'd be a killer if he did that. Uh, and he's not a bad looking guy, you know. Uh, so, uh, but music, yeah, music makes the world go round. There's never been a human culture without music, and we are, you know, somehow it unites us in ways that a sermon or a speech can't. So music is great. Um, um, so the Freedom from Religion Foundation, we're a national organization of atheists and agnostics. We're not strictly atheistic. Uh, and we even have some religious people join our group uh, because they like our work for state church separation. And our two purposes are to keep state and church separate and to educate the public about the views of nonbelievers. 
So we get to do both. We get to do legal work and sue the government, but but I also get to go out and give debates and speeches and musical concerts, um, including now more than 50 songs that are about religion and faith and atheism. Uh, you can't win with original sin and uh, beware of dogma and so on. So membership is $40 a year, and that includes uh, 10 issues of our newspaper, we still print a printed newspaper called Free Thought Today, which is just really full of all sorts of news and stories with both purposes in mind. And our, our national radio show, Free Thought Radio, we just built a TV studio, so we're going to be branching into video and TV now. Uh, we just started branching into it right now. So, um, uh, And if you're a student, you can come to our convention for free. We, we waive registration for students because we want more young people involved. And most young people are kind of poor. So we want them to show up and, and come to the meeting. So we're having our 40th annual convention this September the 15th in Madison, Wisconsin, which is our national headquarters. And uh, Stephen Pinko will be there. Uh, um, Anthony Penn will be there. And uh, Paula Panstone, the comedian. We just signed a contract for her to be there, which is really going to be a blast. Katha Pollitt will be speaking. Uh, so um, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's important work. And, you know, what's more important than working to protect the First Amendment to our great Constitution, to our great country? When, when I'm doing the, 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 the show here live, I can get very uh, dialed in and I can, I can come across very, very serious. But I really want to take the time to express um, what a sincere pleasure speaking with you has been tonight. Um, and I very much want to remind everyone again uh, that your books are available for purchase, both on paper and in digital format. Um, we will be sharing some links to those books over the weekend on the ISM Twitter page and on Facebook. And they are linked in the description of this show on blogtalkradio.com slash informed podcast. Please check out the Freedom From Religion Foundation at ffrf.org to stay up to date on the fight to protect the rights of Americans from religious infringement against the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. You can become a member of that organization on their website, which will provide you with several benefits, including a subscription to the Free Thought Today newspaper. Um, Thank you, Dan, for being with us today and also for working so hard to stand up against the tide of religious irrationality. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Both, both Dans are having a good time here. And we just wanted to make sure to let you know that you're welcome back anytime. Uh, anything that the, the FRF wants to talk about or that you just want to talk about or Danny, uh, any member of the organization, if you want, just shoot us a message and you can be here anytime you want. Our door is always open music? to you, sir. I do not. Do you play music on the show? Oh, you don't? Okay. Now, I own a guitar. I was going to learn, but I, I never did. But, I mean, do you play music on the show? Uh, yes, we have an intro uh, music bit and an outro a little bit that, that comes up as we're ending it. But maybe once in a while you would play one of our songs, you know. Oh, for sure. Fun. Yeah. So, we, would be, right. we would be honored to do that. Well, thanks a lot. we got to go now. It's just about quitting time here. All right. We're going to close up the show, so thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. <coughs> Mr. Barker once said, whatever country you live in, 
Any laws based on glory instead of real harm is dangerous. The glory of the nation or the glory of the monarchy or the glory of the superior race or the glory of the church have been the cause of horrible wars and legally sanctioned discrimination. Any laws based solely on these glories should be morally denounced. They cause unnecessary harm. And to that end, he and the Freedom From Religion Foundation worked tirelessly to try and stop the attack on this nation's secular foundation. If we allow that foundation to be eroded away by ancient superstition, we as the secular community have failed. So I ask you all, please don't rest on being merely a non-believer as I did for so many years, but take up the torch of reason for the next generation. Reject the use of faith as a tool to come to truth. Be outspoken, but be polite. Resist the temptation to leave it to someone else. Be an advocate of critical thinking rated from the church. But most of all, never stop thinking. If I have one duty, one obligation, it is to the truth. If I have one belief, it is that humans are valuable, remarkable, incredible creatures with a rich history and a future that holds infinite potential. Our journey as a species has brought us from the heart of Africa to become an unstoppable collection of societies that have explored every part of the planet. We have built intricate and beautiful cultures that have produced rich literature, music, and art, harnessed the power of science to invigorate our imaginations and conquer disease. We have touched the stars and peered beyond our massive galaxy at the wonders that the universe holds, inviting us to reach beyond our current limits to explore every frontier of reality. If I wanted to invent an ideology that could threaten all of these endeavors simultaneously, that could endanger every bit of progress our species has collectively worked towards, to spoil all of our potential through an enforced dogmatic worldview with a maximum chance of exponentially inflating sectarianism, xenophobia, misogyny, hatred, and war, it would look very similar to monotheism. I might invent an imaginary illness and create a framework in which my fellow man can be systematically inculcated to believe that they have contracted it simply by being born. I might employ the concepts of a sadistic stick and a patronizing carrot in a gross false dichotomy that must be believed in on faith under the threat of being ostracized from the community. I might encourage my fellow beings to judge one another based on arbitrary and inhumane rules that aren't allowed to be questioned and cannot be defended or even fully obeyed. That would be a tailor-made way to handicap humanity and make sure that the largest obstacle between the present and the future is self-replicating within the species, ensuring the best possible distraction from and deterrent to discovery. This is precisely what religion does. It convinces people that they are not good enough on their own and that anyone who disagrees is wretched. It suggests that knowledge should be rejected and replaced with faith in things that are, dem that are demonstrably untrue. It solves nothing while creating waves of new problems wherever it goes. The very last thing we should tolerate is the merger of this vile, simplistic, and anti-human notion with the power and authority of the state. We already have a monster to slay. We must not offer to sharpen its teeth. Our show is dedicated to casting sunlight on the dark and damp corners in which theistic monopoly and masochistic solipsistic ideas are distilled and distributed, encouraging woe and nihilism in the place of self-determination and personal autonomy. It's a mission that we are happy to take on and that we hope you will continue to join us in. Like anything, we have the privilege of building upon the vast and well-crafted foundation on which this quest for humanity stands. It's an adventure that demands respect and care for the hard-won progress earned by the champions who do this work. I got to have a conversation with something of a legend today. Dan Barker's name belongs etched in the wall of modern atheism along with Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, Dennett, Hersey Ali, Dillahunty, Marr, Boghossian, and Krauss. 
Mr. Barker is an inspiration in more ways than one, and we are all, as practitioners of this discussion, in his debt. Let us close tonight with a sense of invigoration and a reminder that we do not attack unreasonable ideas because we personally don't like them, though this is certainly true, but rather because we value humanity, we value our future, and we value the freedom of all beings. We attack irrationality not because we want to take things away from people, but because we want to give them a gift. There is no substitute for the liberty of free thought, no replacement for the power of self-defined purpose, no better way to live than face-to-face with reality. Religion has a nasty habit of trying to crush these ideas, and so it must be resisted for the sake of society and our species. When I look up at the trails that have been blazed, I see the footprints of giants. It is nothing less than an honor for Scott and I to do our humble part to keep that path clear for those who are still lost in the forest of faith. Once again, we want to thank uh, Dan Barker and his son, Danny Barker, for joining us this evening for this episode. You can follow our esteemed guest, Dan Barker, uh, at Dan Barker FFRF, and you can follow the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is at FFRF on uh, Twitter. Directly following this broadcast, Danny will be providing us with a video tour of the FFRF headquarters on Periscope. Follow at ISM Podcast underscore on that platform for an invitation to come shortly. We want to thank our team for all their dedication to making this possible. Maris uh, is at YoungAthlon399, who hosts the broadcast and runs our technical support. Sarah at Sarah underscore smile 5X5 handles a lot of FDR and runs our Facebook page, which is now up and running. So please check that out and give us a like. Cat at All Hallows Night does administrative work behind the scenes as well as assisting with research and promotion. Danielle at Arabun is our coordinator and creates our graphics. Scott and I build and host the show each week and work to bring you the best content we can muster. You can follow him at El Diderino and myself at Dokanefrin. If you would like to contribute to our efforts, we would be most grateful. You can support the show at www.patreon.com slash informedpodcast. We will be back on Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for episode 25. Thank you all for being here. Have a wonderful night and never stop thinking.